up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and their mantra is simple. Hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. I'm here with Aaron Bach. He's the VP of Software from Four Winds Interactive. We met at the sea level at Mile High. That was two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. Thank yeah. you. Bomb cyclone. Yeah, that's right. We survived the bomb cyclone. <laughs> uh, and with that, welcome, Aaron. Thanks Thank for you. making the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, one of the things we had started talking about at the event it was nothing to do with technology. I was a volunteer for the event and you're obviously one of the celebrities for the event. And we had briefly talked um, about some people's approaches to professional relationships. And I don't know if you remember about the, the note and the handwritten card and, you know, give me, let's expand on that a little bit. Like in your role, VP of software, you're probably getting pinged a million different times from, vendors, salespeople, all that. And like, what was your thoughts on the relationship side of that, that I found so that we connected on? Yeah, sure. I I think it's interesting um, to sort of examine how uh, in a lot of professional outreach relationships, quote unquote, they're not really relationships. It's uh, it's sort of this dynamic that to me as a, as a executive feels more like Let's let's do as little as we possibly can to get in the door with you so that I can proceed to pitch you why my product or service is something you are desperately needing. Um, and you're right. I, I, I'm no different than millions of others, but I get I probably get 100 solicitations a week, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are. Uh, really canned and rote and repetitive. You can tell it's some sort of marketing automation program that just inserted my name into it. Um, I actually ran across one the other day where it said something like "dear first name," so they, had, <laughs> they that clearly was not the greatest uh, greatest uh, experience. But then I've had others where uh, I can tell people are really trying to be. Um, aggressive with their sales pitches and they're trying to be um, persistent and I get the hey Aaron third time fourth time really love to get on your calendar and uh, I think what we landed on is I I sort of have the mentality of it is going to be a very very rare day that somebody's product or service wows me so much that right there on the spot I'm going to want to engage with it and that's no indictment on those products or services it's just not for me uh, anything that I find impressive or compelling now on the flip side of it, um, I think if we start to develop a relationship, um, start to have you know some dialogue, some interaction that may or may not be directly connected to the thing that is being pitched, but if we start to develop a relationship, I just know in my heart of hearts that down the road, should the need arise, well, I'm going to go to my friend, my colleague, the person with whom I have a relationship, um, and it's going to, I think, be a much more uh, interesting and compelling engagement rather than the shotgun blast approach of, uh, I'm trying to shoot this out to Aaron. I really hope he sees this solicitation. (laughs) Um, and so at the event, there was an interesting, um, experience where, uh, I was approached most often I get approached by people that want to sell me either staff augmentation for software development, right? They can help fill software development Mm -hmm. positions that I have open or people who want to sell their consulting services, meaning uh, perhaps Four Winds has a lot more project work than it can handle. Maybe we can just offload it to a consultant. Um, And I was approached uh, by a a woman named Kat, uh, and she had actually some weeks prior sent me a physically handwritten card. 
just said, hey, I recognize you get a lot of solicitations. I'm sure they all come through email. Um, no clue if this is going to mean anything, but I'd like to take the opportunity to write you a handwritten note. Let me know um, if there's any way that I can be of help to you uh, and hope you're doing well. Nothing really grandiose, nothing super connected, but it, it, it shocked me in this digital age that a person would take the time to write that kind of note. Uh, and so she approached me at the C-level event and we chatted and, you know, nothing's really changed in our uh, experience right now to need their services, but Cat's now sticking in my mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if something like that were to occur, I think that on my short list of opportunities, I recognize the person who tried to have some sort of personal touch with me rather than, uh, again, the shotgun blast email approach. Um, so now I, I guess, you know, I could imagine there's a legion of salespeople or consultants who now think, cool, if I write handwritten notes, I'm going to get in the door. I think it has to be more about the mentality of, hey, I wanted to reach out and offer this to you. No pressure. would love to, to meet you and learn more about you and develop a relationship with you before we ever worry about business. I know that's hard in a world that's quota carrying and people have deadlines to make. But um, again, for me personally, and I think I speak for a lot of executives, I think that leaves a more lasting impression than someone, again, doing the automated email approach and just hoping it sticks. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. I'm laughing because I I was sick last week and I got one of those exact same emails and was in a very rare bad mood and was going to put this guy on blast because it's <laughs> the 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 marketing automation funnel right yeah. got my name got my email and was like and and I I looked to see how many times they use um the the case or not the case but the talking about you versus me sure and so they were talking about you know me 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 us 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 and then I just love the phrase that, hey, when can I put 15 minutes on your calendar? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you haven't even. You can't. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the offer. (laughs) So I was between NyQuil naps during the day and I had a raging (laughs) headache. And I was like, I'm just going to blast this idiot. Right. And I just was like, no, even that I can't do it. But just how hard is it to take, you know, a couple seconds and look at that and just sort of say, but you're right with you're balancing the quotas, you're balancing all that. It's like there's that immediate need. But I, and I was thinking about this driving up in preparation for this conversation. Like I would probably have been way more successful in my sales career if I was more of a, you know, cyborg, right? The, the T2, the T1000, sorry. And just was like, you know, I'm not really too concerned about what you think about me. Like I want to get this done. I'm going to push this through. And, you know, there may have been like more POs that would come through and more engagements, more commission, but I still can't separate that I have to go back and look at myself in the mirror and on the way back from your office to the car and just kind of go, I, I wouldn't want to be treated like that. Yeah. I think it's a great point. Um, I, I think it's hopefully getting better, but it still seems to be very common that we approach business and sales and marketing with this very transactional. To your point, I'm I'm gonna I don't care if I have to scorch the earth. I'm gonna get this deal done. Right. And you may be, you may be very financially or very um, entrepreneurially successful in doing that. Uh, but I think you're right that whether it is top of mind or bottom of mind, we all have that same mentality of is this really who I want to be? When people think of me, you know, I I know it's uh, maybe a bit cliche, but when I'm on my deathbed and people are thinking about what my life has meant, is it going to, do I really want it to be that I accomplished all these really hyper aggressive uh, opportunities and was really successful in business, but I was kind of a jerk? No, of course, nobody really wants that. Um, I think it's hard, you know, in this in this age we live in where if you want a rush job done, that's 20 minutes and everything is done at lightning speed. Um, I think it's hard to slow down every now and then. And I like what you said, really question, man, if I'm going to look at myself in the mirror. Am I going to like who I'm looking at after that type of engagement? I don't know that I don't know that a lot of people do. And I, I don't want to uh, throw stones. I think uh, I would imagine a lot of people never even consider it just because the hustle and bustle of what they're doing in their careers is overtaking them. Mm-hmm. And I can't blame them. I think we've all been there. But uh, at some point, you are an adult and you are a responsible, productive member of society. And that has to extend, I think, beyond what financial impacts you provide. Yeah. And sales and marketing, I found as a continuum, right? <clears throat> you've got your roles and responsibilities. You've got your day job. You've got the projects you have to execute. And 
I come in and I'm starting at absolute zero. And so the, the, like you said, the likelihood of you just kind of sitting there at your desk going, geez, we have this problem. <laughs> and the phone rings like, holy cow, I'm so happy that you called. You know, there, there has to be the, the funnel or the awareness or the conversion, whatever marketing terms you want to use. But the, the odds of that when I coached a sales team, I told them, think of it like dating. Okay. All we're trying to do is go out for a cup of coffee here and figure out if we're going to lunch. Yeah. And, and I would tell them like, you can't screw this up anymore because they're already at zero. They're not buying from you now. Right. You've, you are at rock bottom. <laughs> you can't mess this up. So it doesn't mean you go in there and you act like a total jerk. You're just like, let some of the pressure off of yourself mm. when you go in and talk to somebody and realize that it's a relationship building thing. And if you're in it and the word that you use that I really liked was transactional. If you're not transactional, if you're not trying to sell like this object to you as fast as possible, but realize that this is a long game and I want to be seen at the end of the day, at least legitimate and respected, right? Even if you never buy from me, at least if we cross paths at another event or at a bar, you're like, I would actually go sit and have a beer with this dude. That's a great point. I like yeah. that. Versus the, oh man, there he is. I, I, I know what that's going to lead to and I'd rather <laughs> avoid that at this juncture. <laughs> For sure. I mean, we were talking about before this started, you know, my my hope, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only person who shares that, but I have a hope that, um, you know, what Denver is growing to be as a tech community um, that's very bustling, very active, can still retain some of its camaraderie, some of its collaboration, right? Everybody's uh, common view of Denver is the one question everybody asks is, where are you from? Because nobody's actually from here. Yeah. It's sort of this big melting pot. Um, that would be my hope. Could this community that is still fairly small um, find a way to bolster one another? And if there is a business relationship that flourishes out of that, wonderful, wonderful. That, that should be celebrated. But that's the icing. That's not the cake. The cake was, yeah, I'm going to get to know Matt so that when we cross paths and we will cross paths, that it can be a relationship. And then should there be a business opportunity, we will have the foundation for that to be a much more productive discussion. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm more of a technology entrepreneur, so I'm much more focused on what can be done versus pie in the sky. What is every possibility? So I, I tend to, in my day-to-day -day life, deal much more in really hard, solid fact, really hard, solid, uh, engagement. And so I probably veer a little too far from taking the leap, trying to say, uh, I'm going to go pitch this, even though I have no shot. But I really feel like building a relationship at a minimum is going to lower my my barriers of resistance to where, cool, let's actually have a conversation and see if something comes out mm -hmm. of it. So it's probably a good segue to talk about <clears throat> four wins and what you do. So you talk about being a tech entrepreneur. So take me through in whatever way you see fit, like what what is it you say you do here? <laughs> so four wins is um, one of the coolest uh, companies I've ever had an opportunity to work for because unlike many organizations, I can go all around the world and show my grandmother what I do for a living. Uh, so Four Winds is a software company. We provide enterprise visual communication software. So the, the way that that predominantly manifests itself is in large interactive or non-interactive digital signage, mm. whether it's in a hotel, a casino, a corporate office, a college campus, um, healthcare facility, anywhere that you need to take the really reams of good data and content that people are sitting on in their internal systems and showcase them in a really beautiful, compelling visual format. That's what we do. So um, you might imagine, say you were to walk into you know a, any number of the casinos on the Vegas Strip and you see signs promoting uh, restaurant specials or promoting mm. uh, tournaments that are going on in poker rooms or are showcasing running totals in progressive slot meters. We are the software that powers that. Uh, if you go into a corporate office like ours, uh, we try to showcase ours as the workplace of the future, and you see sales metrics, you see birthdays, you see information about upcoming events, you see promotions. Uh, all that software uh, is ours, and it's in place to take all this really good information and show it to our workforce in a way that's compelling and actionable. Uh, so, Four Winds has been around for going on 15 years now. Started out as a uh, an offshoot of a company that developed. If you remember back in the day, you'd go to malls and you see these kiosks selling uh, like Native American DVDs and mm. CDs, and you could you know play a sample on your headphones at that kiosk. And um, that kiosk software was sort of the precursor to what Four Winds 
would become. And then it progressed uh, out into being able to grab, as I said, content and data from a variety of sources, doing things like interactive wayfinding, how do I get from where I am to where I want to go, all sorts of great integrations, and built up this big software platform again, designed to take all that content and data and do something useful with it rather than having it reside in SharePoints and intranets and mm. databases and things like that. <clears throat> so is the has the technology progressed to the point, and I'm not a tinfoil hat like conspiracy guy at all, but is are, are your devices talking to our mobile devices in our pocket? So when you say like the, the navigation, the wayfinding, mm. Is it, are they like talking to each other? Is it progressed to that? Yeah. I like that you say you're not a tinfoil hat because the very first conversation we had, wasn't it around how Alexa's <laughs> listening to us? Sorry, anybody yeah. who just has one of those devices. Um, no, okay, Google. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy that for a moment. Um, no, it's, a, it's a wonderful question. And our business is like a lot of technology business, businesses where it's at the intersection of what is tangibly possible with all this data in really cool ways. And what are what is society comfortable with at this stage? So, for instance, um, our devices by default are not gathering data on you as a person and transmitting it out there. Um, there are ways to do that should the need arise. Um, where we get into, I think, very interesting conversations, maybe you look at like a retail space. Um, retail is all about uh, driving conversion, right? You want them to spend time at the shop or the store and purchase. Um, and part of that is understanding dynamics, attitudes, personalities. So one of the things that a lot of retail customers will ask for is a way to deduce the sentiment or the attitude of their customer base. Um, is Matt in the store? Does he look happy? How long is he spending browsing? Um, did he come back more than one time in a 24-hour period? That's all really good information for the retailer um, to drive their business. But you as an average Joe consumer might think, wow, that's a bit big brotherish. Like you're you're tracking me. It's just tracking me to try and sell me more stuff. And I don't like that. It's kind of the the corollary to what we were just talking about of how about building a relationship with me, Aero Postal, before you try and sell me something. <laughs> um so, you know, by default, we are very respectful of privacy. Um, we're very respectful of data aggregation and transmission. Um, there are some spaces uh, that people ask us to go into that we've said, no, that's not really our wheelhouse. Um, I think, though, in the era of IoT, Internet of Things, this question is going to get asked a lot more and more as we start to put Internet-enabled uh, devices into things that weren't previously Internet-enabled. Uh, for data collection, people are naturally going to be wary of what is that collecting and where is it going? Um, and so we we are trying to really balance that. And I will just say, you know, uh, it is a hard conversation, I think, for us and anybody in our industry, how to how to push the bounds, but also be respectful of society's norms. Right. <clears throat> and the, the tinfoil hat conversation you mentioned <laughs> to bring everybody up to speed is that I had um, positioned that it's not outside my realm of possibility that the iPhone and smartphones and Facebook and all that was the most grand and well-executed surveillance experiment in the world. <laughs> but I'm not like, I, I, I don't, think I think it's a fair it. assumption, right? Yeah. When, when <clears throat> the leak about the department of defense's prism stuff came out and mm -hmm. you know, there were all these back doors, government sponsored back doors into things. Um, I think we all had that feeling. It was, you know, the idea of, um, and if you, you've seen The Dark Knight, the mm -hmm. very classic Batman movie, right at the end, um, uh, Batman and Lucius Fox are having this discussion about turning every cell phone in the city of Gotham into this like surveillance net. And Lucius thinks that's a really problematic situation. But meanwhile, Batman is just trying to stop the Joker with that tool. Right. Um, so I think it's it is interesting, and I I. I think there are some things that are still very categorically tinfoil hat, but that to me is a very real question. We we are sort of blindly marching into uh, IoT, into social media, into smartphone, all this technology for all the benefits it has. And I feel like we as a society don't do a good job until 100 years later at analyzing what was the impact to our society by doing that. Even right. if nothing nefarious is happening right now. We, you and I don't know, and if nobody if nobody can categorically prove it, then we're always going to naturally wonder. That's on the good end, and then on the bad end, yeah, there is a whole bunch of stuff going on. I I thought about this recently. I'm I'm a Spotify premium user, and I got an email mm. a couple months ago about, hey, if you're a Spotify premium user, you are entitled to a free Google Home Mini, no strings attached. And I was like, okay, cool, that's neat. Um, and I you know whatever, I'm an IoT guy, I like hardware. I was playing around with it. 
and I came to the thought, I'm not going to claim that I know this for sure, but I came to the thought of uh, it's probably trivial in terms of the cost of that little device to Google to just give, let's say, I don't know, 10 million of them away for free to all the Spotify premium subscribers in the United States, and I think it was North America. Um, trivial when weighed against the benefit that they would get at having this now listening, AI-driven, analytics-powered machine in, let's say, 10 million new households. Um, and again, Google can say, we're not doing anything nefarious with it, but I, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that that wasn't a part of their strategy. We're willing to suck down the cost of, you know, I don't know what it costs to build 10 million Google Home Minis, but maybe that's far outweighed by the analytics and the machine learning we're going to be able to get out of that right i think it is interesting and it's you know <laughs> we tend to we tend to quantify on a couple of camps we have an innovation group here at four winds that meets quite regularly and this is a, a conversation we bring up all the time is technology inherently neutral meaning is it neither good nor bad and it's up to humans implementation of it that makes it good or bad or is there some technology that is inherently good or bad just by its very nature? And one of the questions we've talked about is some of this analytics gathering and uh, feeding it into a neural network for it to deduce conclusions. Is that just neutral by itself until a human interprets it? Or is there something more, I guess, robust and intelligent going on in there? And that, to my previous point, I worry that it's going to be 100 years and you and I will be in the ground before society really understands what the impact of all this was. Yeah. And I think technology tends to outpace the, I hesitate to use the word, moral mm. implications of that because it's in a technology's person's best interest to get everything going fast, right? Let's invent something. And then the unintended consequences come after it's kind of released into the wild and you're right, like there's, we're still dealing with like the unintended consequences of the printing press. If you think about it, like mm -hmm. books going out there. Mm -hmm. And I like your question about is, is technology inherently neutral? Because if you look at a hammer, right, a simple piece of technology, you step up from a rock from pounding a nail into a wall, it's the usage of it that determines whether it's good or bad. Mm. But is like uh, an armed drone <laughs> where it's designed for that purpose. Right. Well, then that argument kind of gets a little bendy and a little gray, and a little flexy. For sure. So that's a fascinating conversation. One of the great <clears throat> examples we've talked about is that back when it was first introduced, um, Google Photos was this revolutionary idea of, hey, free unlimited photo storage. Mm -hmm. Will, uh, if I got, you know, 37 pictures of Matt, you know, even if you're blurring in the background, it'll be able to say that's a picture of Matt. Really cool. Uh, but then all of a sudden, this tweet pops up um, of, I forget if a man or woman, but African-American person who said, hey, Google, uh, your algorithm, I looked at the categorizations of all this, and it's showing all my friends as apes. So it was categorizing African-American people as apes. Uh, and that was a really interesting question of, okay, if we look at technology, I guess you could make the argument that the algorithm was was trying to identify uh, visual traits and somehow arrived at this erroneous conclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, but the device wasn't evil. It just came to a bad conclusion and, uh, it, you know, whatever. But then I guess you could come to the other perspective of should should this technology have been cognizant of what sort of implications were possible when categorizing, um, you know, an ethnicity or a type of person or a type of event. Um, and it just it really showcase to me it's a very difficult question and i i tend to be more on the side of you know as long as we are the ones inventing the technology we are the ones imbuing it with the bias and the issues and the human uh, quandaries i guess and so maybe at its fundamental level it is neutral but it's irrelevant because humans are designing it and therefore it will always have a bias because we influenced it mm -hmm. um and obviously, this is, you know, it's something you could sit around in an ivory tower and discuss for the rest of your life. Um, but I thought that was a very interesting point. I, I can't imagine Google intended for that to happen maliciously. However, it really hurt this individual and a community of individuals that felt uh, ostracized by this very bad outcome. And so, therefore, Google and its technology ought to have some responsibility to talk about improvement or collaborate on improvement. And just, I think you made a great point. We... Part of our very agile culture, especially in entrepreneurship and software development, is um, MVP, minimally viable product. Do what you got to do. Get it out the door. Let's get feedback. Let's iterate. Boom, 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 boom. And in this uh, really fast-paced world, there's a part of me that wonders, did we take a 
an attitude we didn't like, which is we think about things forever and we never get anything done. And we kick so far the other way of we're always getting stuff done. We're just never really thinking about what the consequences are. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a challenge and it's something I don't know that you know until you're way down the road. My wife and I talk about this all the time with, um, you know, smartphones and screens. We don't have children yet, but presumably one day we will. And so one of the thoughts is, you know, as we, as we try to uncover as a society, what are, what is screen time doing to our attention span? What is social media doing to our tendency to unfairly compare ourselves to others? Our kids are going to grow up in a world where that is the norm now. And we can kind of remember a time before that existed. Um, and, I feel like that is one area where I'm a I'm a capitalist through and through. I really appreciate the market's ability to help good businesses survive and grow and thrive. Um, but I feel like as a as any sort of executive, we ought to carry a responsibility not just for what tangible benefits does my thing provide, but how is it helping to further this discussion around the social ramification of what we're doing? And I don't know that that happens all that often. <clears throat> One of the first things I'll do is I'll look at a company's page and see if they actually publish their values. Mm. And I'll see if that's sort of um, well thought out or if it's more of a template. Mm. And in some cases, I've um, kind of pushed back on some things with the people I'm talking to on sales calls. But I think it's something that has to be thought about and addressed. Mm. as in, in, And hopefully... Each person has their own set of values, but as a company, if you're pointing this gigantic ship and it's going somewhere, you're making something and selling something and having an impact on people's lives, that that would be something that would be considered mm, absolutely. and published. Absolutely. One, and this is slightly tangential, one of the big like stories that I and many of us are all fascinated in right now is the story of Theranos, the blood testing company that has yes. since gone under. Um, and I think it's a wonderful sort of, uh, well, not wonderful, but it's a very broad, I guess, examination of uh, technology and technology for technology's sake isn't quite good enough when you're dealing with uh, human concerns. And that uh, we all have this attitude that, you know, proper um, business and technology and innovation should thrive, but that when it connects to something intrinsically human, whether it's your health, physical or mental, whether it's your future, your well-being, your family, the the societal norms that by living in a society we all seem to agree upon, um, that there ought to be some uh, sort of expression or understanding of, my, yeah, my company, to your point, my values can't just be uh, to build this thing as big as I can get it or to influence as many people as I can get to. Um, I read a great article the other day uh, that talked about a lot of times uh, organizations and businesses and projects grow at the pace that the market is demanding them to grow. And this particular article, this individual talked about how he realized now uh, Silicon Valley guy worked at, I believe it was Google and decided to start his own tech startup, had the dreams of the unicorn, going to go build this billion dollar Mm -hmm. startup and was well on his way and then had some faltering and and had to lay off huge portions of his workforce. And now it's sort of this side business, much smaller, but he's realized uh, what he should have done from the beginning is said, okay, this idea that I have, how is, how is the market and therefore how is society at large demanding that this thing grow? And, and why don't I try to meet them where they're at rather than impose my wildly unrealistic corporate views on everybody else and just assume they get on board. (laughs) I feel like one of the, one of the um, downsides of having lived in the Steve Jobs era is we all have a tendency now as technologists and entrepreneurs to believe that it is our job to tell people what they're missing. You don't know what you're missing. I'm going to tell you what you're missing. Um, and who knows if that's right or wrong? Who knows if it's once in a generation or every day? Um, but for generations, you know, our country, our society, our businesses have thrived on the idea of what do you really care about, Matt? What do you really struggle with? What is something in your life that you need help with? And how can I meet you where you're at rather than from on high declaring when I, where I think you <laughs> ought to be? And it's probably easy for me to say that, but I think it's interesting, all back to your point, it's interesting to consider what, as a company, what are your values? What, what is the grander global mission that's driving you? And if it's just to grow a big company, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out there that that isn't good enough. There's some questions I would like to ask Mr. Jobs and again, an unintended consequence of the iPhone, the connectivity and things like that, but it's become a traffic menace, a traffic nightmare right? And 
I would just love to ask him that very simple question. Like, did you ever foresee people using this in a car? Right. And how that has changed something that's been around for, you know, uh, over a hundred years and impacted this in a way that's completely negative. Right. Do we have to keep seeing the signs? Sadly, the Colorado Department of Transportation puts up that is telling people how many how many deaths have occurred from texting while driving. Like, as a as an adult, that sort of strikes me as like, well, shouldn't that be obvious? But shoot, am I? If I'm going to be really honest, it's tempting when I'm listening to a podcast or I'm checking my navigation or I'm at a stoplight and I just got a notification. Like, all of that stuff is pulling on me. It's pulling right. on all of us. Um, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's and I wonder to the point of I'd love to ask him or you'd love to ask him some questions. I wonder if he would have, you know, done his thing where he always sort of saw reality as he saw it, not maybe as it was actually mm. occurring. Um, I think about one of the interesting maybe pieces of his legacy is now, right, iOS has that screen time report that shows you how. And instead of saying, hey, we recognize we may have put a device in your hand that has changed and rewired your brain, made you more addicted. Now it's no, now you have control over your time. We gave you this thing, but now we're giving you additional features <laughs> as opposed to just saying, hey, we may have screwed up here. Let, let's try as a society to try and uh, be, I guess, more cognizant of how we're using these devices. But it is very like, you can't admit failure in this world. I think that's another big piece of all this is in business and culture. It is still very taboo to admit we were wrong. There's always couching and positioning. Um, you know, we we thought it was going to be wonderful. Yeah, backtracking. We, we thought it was going to be wonderful. Um, it seemed like a good idea. I mean, go back to the Theranos example. All of Elizabeth Holmes' deposition right now is all centered around. We thought we were doing the right thing. We, we thought we were doing the right thing. And how much better if the human species could, I guess, handle its pride enough to say, "Wow, I really screwed that up," or "I made a mistake," and I don't know exactly how to solve it, but I'm going to at least admit that what I did here. It's not just, I'm not just going to highlight what my intentions were, but I'm going to point out my intentions were not met by my ultimate actions or results. Um, who knows if that's a little too philosophical <laughs> for most people. Um, but I think it's interesting to consider. And I, I don't know that a lot of companies, especially in a lot of executives, a lot of businesses have that mindset of it's okay to fail. And when we fail, we may have to own up to that failure. And we, we teach our children that. And somehow in, into adulthood, we seem to lose that idea or, or we have this expectation that we have to be infallible. We can never show any vulnerability. But there's no reason the rules change just because 20 or 30 years of your life passes. Well, I, I grew up as a, in science and technology. I was a software engineer for Medtronic for 10 years. <clears throat> Math minor, physics, all that stuff. And one thing I took away from science is that failure is not bad. Mm. And the code either compiles or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You can't fake it, right? Like if you've got a syntax error, it doesn't work, right? <clears throat> and the point is to get to the point where it does work. And that is the definition of success. And failure is not bad. It's just uh, a subroutine or something that you wrote or an experiment that the compounds didn't work. It's not failure. Mm. It's almost like you, you, ha you now have more information than you had before. As Correct. to what doesn't work. Why, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Why do, you, why do you think people struggle so much with just expressing that in day-to-day -day life? Or do you see the same thing that I see in terms of people struggling to you know, deal with failure or express it in its true form and not want to hide it away? Well, that's a deep question. Um, I think a lot of it is self-esteem, right? Um, I do think social media, in a sense, I'm not pinning this all on social media, but you see somebody's Instagram feed or their Facebook feed and nobody's posting, uh, I gained four pounds today or, <laughs> you know, or, or like I, I, you know, I burned this cake, right? It's right. all like the, the, the successes. Right? right. And I think it's, um, fascinating that admitting you don't know something and admitting you didn't, know what to do but hey, hey we'll figure this out is um not widely accepted mm. i was watching 60 minutes and there was the kid that invented the plastic machine the eating thing that mm, goes yeah. out in the ocean right and this was squarely on the reporter asking this question and said you know people are saying that the, this first version of your thing didn't work right and I'm sitting there going, well, of course not. <laughs> That's not even an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, That's a completely bonkers expectation. Right. So 
you can have all the simulations in the world, all the best people, you know, all the oceanographers, all the, you know, the, the wave uh, mechanics, the fluid dynamics people, this, that, and the other. And like the minute that you build this thing up, go from scale to production, and put it in the water and you're dealing with wind and temperature and salinity of the water and like, well, you know, maybe you run into a plastic bag that's been out there five years as opposed to one week and all your testing was like, it's like, he didn't fail, right? This kid put a ball on a tee and took a swing and built this ship that's trying to make a difference. And the first one didn't work. It's like, no shit. Mm. <laughs> he didn't fail. Interesting. They're like, we have this expectation now that for whatever reason, <clears throat> right out the gate, you better nail it or it's over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've tried to coach my kids and, and friends and, you know, other like entrepreneurial advice stuff and just sort of say, really, there's not a whole lot that's life and death. Hmm. Unless you're literally launching a rocket. <laughs> Trying to send people to Mars. Yeah. You know, there's not much that where the penalty for failure is catastrophic. Mm. So just relax. Treat it appropriately. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Iterate, improve, and just sort of like, it's going to be okay. That's interesting. I was thinking about one of my, uh, my wife and I had this conversation a lot where Obviously, we know all the benefits of, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like a 90-year-old trapped in a 30-year-old's body, so I don't know if I <laughs> like social media, period. I'm sure there's benefits somewhere. But if you look at the internet as a whole, all the benefits of it, I feel like the internet and social media and, and 24-hour news, it has created this sense of, uh, one of our good friends put it best, she mentions it as creating the tendency for us to compare our behind the scenes to somebody else's highlight reel. And it, ju it just hit me as you're right on, on Instagram, especially, um, you know, people are taking better vacations than I am. They are more <laughs> successful business people than I am. They seem to have happier families than mine. They don't seem to struggle at all. Like I do. Um, and seems to create this, I don't know, this, uh, really tumultuous mixture of, I think you, you hit it on the head, Matt, the self-consciousness, a little bit of jealousy, aspiration, envy, uh, obsession, all packaged into this bundle of, you know, uh, aspiration. My dad always would say, keeping up with the Joneses, this attitude of whatever I have isn't good enough. And now I got proof that it isn't good enough. Uh, and so I'm right. going to spend my life trying to get there. And you have um, our friend in the idea of your behind the scenes to somebody else's highlight reel. You have no clue whether that's actually representative of their for, full life or much more likely that is representative of what they want you to see. And in the background, they got the same family troubles. They got the same job struggles. They have the same self-esteem struggles that we all have. Uh, but this platform promotes uh, putting out there what you want to put out there. Just like, you know, that's true of anywhere on the internet. Everybody uh, in the web 2.0 generation gained a voice and we never stopped to ask ourselves, does that mean every voice is equivalent? Should I listen to every voice equally? Um, if somebody's truth smashes into somebody else's truth really violently, well, what's left over? Is there no objectivity anymore? All, back to the point of all these, all these uh, great technological advancements. And yet I wonder... You know, I'm at the I'm at the older stage of the millennial generation, but I wonder if my generation in particular is going to grow up very passionate, very driven, all these things, but also really existentially confused and really struggling to know their place in the world, their place in their families, their place with their friends and colleagues, uh, and always, always uh, struggling or potentially even failing to understand the balance between appropriate aspiration and endless striving. And that's, mm. that's my 90 year old self, assuming that's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but it, like, all, the, all the way back to the point, we introduced all this cool stuff. No clue how it's rewiring society. I guess we'll find out. Hopefully we're still you know around when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Terminator. I think that's where we're going. <laughs> Skynet's coming. <laughs> and I got to tell you, as, a, as a, a recovering engineer, I see things like, and not to pile on Boeing, like the, the Max 8 and all that. I'm like, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more mm. because mm. we're dealing with, we're creating something out of nothing, correct? And so you and I have to sit down and we have our specifications and our requirements and we're doing this and we have our fault cases and things like that. And if there's a fault case that we haven't thought about, then something like that happens. Yeah, lives end. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And then you think about, 
that's just the electronics, right? Now we talk about the software and now we talk about the physics and now we're talking about the hardware, the hydraulics, all this stuff. It's amazing these things get anywhere. I know. You're you're 100% right. Like if you if you let yourself do it, you get real freaked out real quickly thinking yeah. about all the things you take for granted in your day-to-day life that are the culmination of a bunch of humans putting together their best efforts with hopefully good quality <laughs> control and now you're riding on it. Absolutely. Right. I, I, it, it makes me laugh. I was thinking um, a little while back, it was a while back, but I, only a little while ago, I saw that NASA released all the source code for the original Apollo lunar module oh, no onto GitHub. And I was like, cool, let's look around. And I, you know, number one, as a software engineer, I'm fascinated at all like low level byte code. And, yeah. you know, I think programmers today are pretty spoiled in building these like gigabyte hungry web applications when these guys were building, you know, spacecraft on this low level assembly language. But all over the place, there were comments strewn throughout this code of like, I think this works. Or um, press, you know, don't press this in the wrong order. Otherwise, boom. <laughs> and just all these comments that showcase think exactly what you said. You know, we, we look back at that time. Wow, we, we put a man on the moon. That's an amazing feat of physics, engineering, chemistry, all of this software. Um, had Apollo 13 blow up and still get all those three guys back home alive. And yet... Um, there's there's this sort of uh, vision in the comments of the code of a, still a bunch of very smart but still human beings putting together their best effort and strapping a bunch of explodable fuel to somebody and hoping it worked. <laughs> and I agree with you. I mean, you know, they, they talk all the time about how flying is the, the safest way to travel. And then something like um, these two accidents with a Max 8 happen. And I have the same mentality. How... These airplanes, like this is an unbelievable feat of engineering. How is this not happening more? How are we not in more danger every single time? I think uh, I have a good friend who is a pilot uh, for SkyWest. And um, just listening to the amount of training and scenario planning and more training and uh, all this stuff that they go through, it is really intense. Um, And I, I often, I have like a dual appreciation for what it means for him and his first officers or other pilots to captain these planes but also it's still human beings relying on reactions and intellect and on the on the you know cuff thinking um to keep us in the air to keep us safe and it is pretty wild that it all works Mm -hmm. i think you could have like i said a real existential crisis if you thought about that for too long (laughs) well and i don't think boeing because let's say you're an executive at boeing right and you're selling these airplanes to southwest and in in no way am i defending them i'm just trying to be neutral in this at some point somebody you know is going to be on one of your planes and going back to how we started this conversation about sales is like there's not enough money in my bank account i couldn't have enough houses around the world at least for me that would let me spin that ball on that roulette table Mm. that, you know, I would ultimately be responsible for that. Now I know that there's been corporations and products out there that have, they've been like, you know, we, we know this is bad. Mm -hmm. Right. But, and I'm thinking, I just don't see people inherently uh, evil in that way or Mm. uh, uncaring in that way or so profit driven that that would be, acceptable to anybody in for sure now here'd be my question to use the theranos example how does that fit into that paradigm right the implication there is that she the ceo elizabeth holmes was very focused on pushing forward this vision of you know thousands of blood tests off a couple drops of blood turns out it was all fraudulent there were there were i was just reading yeah. before we started right cases of um a guy who went and he is, he has a blood disorder where it can cause his blood to clot quicker than it should and so he has to get his blood test every month and did a lab test, did two Theranos tests. The Theranos, the first one said his platelet count was like 30% too high, just massively too high. And the next one said his platelet count was like 10 or 12% too low. And um, he had the foresight to go get tested elsewhere. But presumably a lot of individuals had faulty results or faulty medical advice from these tests. Maybe lives were at stake. And now she is claiming in her depositions, uh, we did the best we could. And I, I wonder, a lot of, we have a tendency to look at that and go, uh-uh, you're fraudulent. There's no way you couldn't have known. But I think you raise an interesting point. Would would she have been willing to stick her grandmother with this technology? And I, if the answer is yes, is she inherently a bad person? Maybe she just made a mistake. Yeah. And I had, like, how do you rationalize in your mind <clears throat> what seems like evil action with that thought of, I, I, don't, I don't truly believe that people in positions of power are... Uh, 
out for nefarious purposes, if I've heard you correctly. Um, that, from what I've seen about Theranos, I would um, take the opposite view of that, right? And again, we'll never know the full story, and I think there's a lot of PR and damage control with that. My guess would be that they out did their runway. Mm. So they started maybe believing their own PR. Mm. And I think, and I would, I would be a terrible rock star, right? Cause if I had all that money, right. And I had all the access in the world, you know, the absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. I would be horrible at that. <laughs> right. Because I just know myself, yeah. like when I get paid, like, I'm going out to lunch or going out to dinner that night, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, and it's like, woohoo, big yeah. party at Outback Steakhouse, right? <laughs> but now if I had like six commas in my bank account or, or a couple commas in my bank account and I'd be unstoppable, yeah. you start believing your own press. Mm-hmm. And then and I, I would have to dig more into that, that use case with Theranos, but I would wonder if they started believing the hype and then now there's stock valuation and then there's uh, investor capital and now all of a sudden it's like oh this doesn't work but we're too big right. to, to fail the, to fail or to tell the truth yeah <clears throat> so desperately and try to fix it do whatever you got to do i think so yeah that's interesting yeah. I also think about, you know, the other example recently that everybody's all fired up about is Billy McFarlane, the guy who did the fire Festival. Yeah. Um, and well, obviously, you know, that whole story, uh, what a tragedy it was. And then as he's under indictment um, federally for that, he's running some side hustle on the side, like selling VIP access uh, Hamilton tickets for $200. Like that's a case where um, because it happened, I guess, you know, a couple different times, I start to wonder, this guy has got a screw loose. Like either mm-hmm. he's either really cruel and mean and, and evil or he is uh, just so living in some alternate reality where somehow this all makes sense. But they, at the end of the day, a lot of people are defrauded and hurt and bankrupt yeah. because of him. Um, yeah. I do think it you know, brings up an interesting point. The more you progress in your career, and I know this is sort of a weird time, but all the way back to our, com- our conversation about developing relationship, the more power, the more authority, the more money, the more influence that you have, I think... Uh, as as that grows, your responsibility to be a good friend, a good colleague, a good person, all this stuff, I don't think it grows linearly with it. I think it grows exponentially. That with uh, the Uncle Ben mantra, with great power comes great responsibility, but not linearly. Um, right. Every single step up you go, the burden is more on you, exponentially so, um, to think about the, the rationale behind your decisions, to think about the ultimate impact of those decisions, the people and lives and influence that you will have um and to you know there's always going to be sticky situations but to treat that equivalently with the success of your business um i've got my mba here in denver at the university of denver and it was right 2008 2009 right markets crashing worst recession of our lifetime um and one of the things they talked about was you know that the the sort of old economic principle of take care of the bottom line. Because if you take care of the bottom line, you're inherently taking care of the people who help provide to the bottom line. I, th- I don't think that was a cruel idea. I think it was, you know, reasonable. Um, but 2008, 2009, and all of our classes started to talk about it isn't enough to just focus on that because we're seeing examples now of people who get so locked there. They don't grow their, their um, I guess, respect or appreciation or need to provide for their people, their society, all the things around them that didn't grow exponentially, um, that you can't just look at how well am I doing on our balance sheet anymore. That's not right. going to be reflective enough. And I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the tendency in our time now is to still say, well, it still has to be the mo- most important thing for my business, my company, my whatever to be successful because if I can't make money, I can't pay people. Yeah, that's true. But it, it's kind of like the... You know how you mentioned physics. Physicists think about this all the time. Just because you have two separate theories that are true, but they can't go together, well, that's not going to be good enough. You've got to you got to pull back to a higher theory. We can't just be operating on a small set of facts that only works in a certain set of situations. Um, and so I don't know. I'm I'm really passionate about this idea that as you grow in influence, as you grow in position, um, you know, even a little bit, your responsibility to the people around you in all aspects grows exponentially. And that's why leadership ought to be a really lonely place. It's a lonely endeavor to carry that mm-hmm. kind of weight. 
And I, I wonder, you know, I look at the Elizabeth Holmes, the Billy McFarlands. I wonder if that still exists in them or it, to your point, if it just was the vision was so expansive and then, you know, the ball ran away from them before they could catch it. Uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking a little bit more about how I would judge those guys, judge Theranos and, and Elizabeth, right? And here's what I would think is that I think f- the expectation of a leader to know everything going on like how many people report to you i've got about 60 people in my organization if you spent um an hour a day with each person it just doesn't add up no way right so i think anybody that hasn't anybody that's like throwing shade at somebody like that that hasn't worked in a big organization or led people it's a false expectation that they would know everything going on right like see every single email yeah where i would point the finger and cast ultimate blame on that organization was, did you have like a mandatory, like bad news policy Mm. that anybody could walk in and go, I've got a test result. Like this doesn't work. And like that person goes to the front of the line, not going through six layers of management. Speaking of NASA, thinking about the challenger Mm. accident, the O-rings, right? There's, there's some low level dudes that knew that was going to happen. Right. So where is that path? Right. <clears throat> and then if Theranos didn't build that structure that would allow the open exchange of truth and, you know, dialogue and bad news, then that's her responsibility. Mm, I like that. a Right. Lot. So that's where I would lay the blame. Yeah. And I think if, if they knew that and you could say, well, we really, we intended to do the right thing, <laughs> but a- if you had the data that said it was wrong and you still proceeded right. down that same path, then yes, you are culpable. And that I think is the one that drives it for me is all these whistleblower employees that came out, um, you know, have evidence of bringing that information to Elizabeth and her COO slash boyfriend, I might add. That's a whole separate story. Um, <laughs> no red flags No there. red flag at all. No. <laughs> and in both cases, um, the whistleblower people having their having their credibility judge what makes you uh, what makes you qualified to come to these assessments um the coo at one point uh sent an email back to one of the main whistleblowers who said hey our quality controls are such that we are we are throwing out data that doesn't fit our model which is not laboratory science and his response was basically the only reason i've taken time out of my incredibly busy schedule to respond to this email is to put your false assertions down and the only further email i want to see on this topic is an apology from you Oh, so geez. that's that was the one where I had that attitude for a while. Like, okay, maybe they just didn't know. And then you see that, and you're like, eh, hold on a second. Now, now you just are now you're just burying your head in the sand and not looking at what you don't want to see. And ultimately, I, I love what you said. Like, you any sort of executive leader, um, sh- you not only shouldn't be expected to, but really shouldn't, as a practice, know every single detail of every single bit of their organization because then you're not doing your job as a leader. You're in the weeds. Um, but if somebody, you're, like you say, if somebody raises an escalation to you and you blow it off, you put it down, you criticize it, uh, you don't have discourse or dialogue about it, well, sorry, pal. No, the ball is in your court now, mm-hmm. and that's how it works. Absolutely. Well, and this is one of the reasons I love doing this is we really didn't talk a whole lot about <laughs> your company or your job, but let's let's plan a part two yeah. at some point. This is great, man. I really appreciate yeah. the time. It's fun to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Bach, uh, part one, VP of software with 4Wins Interactive. So excellent. Thanks, bud. Thanks. Appreciate it.